Let's pray as we prepare to hear God's word this morning. Father, help us to hear you clearly today. Give me the right words to speak. If I say anything that is incorrect or not in keeping with your will, please blot it out from all of our minds and hearts. Father, we pray that you shape each and every one of us here today to hear the message that your word intends to convey to us. Help us to be receptive of it. Help us to receive whatever challenge or encouragement you have for us and to be grateful for it. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So again, we're in this Revelation series called The Big Reveal, and we're working through the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And and just to give you the big picture of this book, Revelation is about Jesus Christ. It intends to, to pull back the curtains of heaven and show us Jesus. And it's a book of prophecy. It's a book that wants to say to us, thus says the word of God. This is what God has to say, and it's also a letter. It's what God has to say to us here and now. So this book, it's all about Jesus, it's revelation, it's prophecy, it's letter. And today we're going to read one of the letters to the seven churches in in this early part of the book of Revelation. And the sermon title today is, How to Hold On. This letter is all about holding on to Jesus Christ. That's the key to understanding this letter. So with with that as background, let's step into our text for today. We'll be reading Revelation 2 from verse 12 to 17. And we'll be coming back to this text throughout the sermon. So you, you may want to grab a Bible from the bench and have it open before you. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to ask a number of questions during this sermon, and that's how we're going to work through this text. I have noted on the screen a little bit more than usual, and you can kind of tell what part we'll be working through because I'll have the verses noted on there. But the first question we're going to ask from from verse 2.13 is, what was Satan's throne? You know, that comes up a couple times here in this text. And, and what in the world is Revelation referring to? And, and we don't have one set answer, but there's a lot of possibilities in Pergamum that we think we're, we're particularly supposed to be called to mind when thinking of Satan's throne. And one option is Asclepius' snake. And I don't pronounce that word the same twice in a row, so pronounce it however you like. It's spelled all kinds of different ways. But there's this god called Asclepius. And he was a god of healing. And, and in the ancient world, a snake was often a symbol of healing. 
And Asclepius, his, his religion, his cult, his whatever you want to call it, was centered on the city of Pergamum. That was the main city. And so this was a city that was famous for this image of a god with a snake all wrapped around him. And if you think biblically, snake should lead you to think serpent, which should lead you to think Satan. So Satan's throne, the place where there's this false god who dwells, who, who is this snake all wrapped up with this man, which fits the biblical picture of how Satan led humanity astray. So that's one option. And another option is, is Zeus's throne or Zeus's altar. And there was this huge, huge altar to Zeus in the city of Pergamum. It probably was about as high as our ceiling here and about as, about as wide as our sanctuary. And it had two staircases on each side and went up maybe 30 feet or so, maybe a little less. And it looked like this gigantic throne. And this was the altar to Zeus, the chief of all the Roman gods, the throne of Satan, the place where another god who was no god at all claimed to rule from. But then there's also the cult of Caesar or emperor worship, and Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And so this was the place where, where a lot of Roman officials lived and where Roman power was distributed. And and where Christians were persecuted for not worshiping the emperor. The throne of Satan, where there was this power that sat on a throne and declared that you must worship, you must worship something other than Jesus. And there's a number of other possibilities too, but, but those are the most prominent. So we think when the original listeners in Pergamum heard this letter, they would have had all kinds of ways that it resonated with them of, we do we do live in the place where Satan has his throne. And then Revelation talks a bit about, about this faithful witness Antipas and how the church has held on, has been faithful even through persecution, even up to the point of death. And we don't know exactly, actually everything we know about Antipas is in this text here. We don't know exactly how he died, but, but we know that he died because of the satanic forces lined up against God's church. This was a church that lived near Satan's throne. Let's bring that to today and ask where, what, what is Satan's throne today? And, and one really good answer for that, I think, is that Satan's throne is the whole world today. Everywhere in this world is ruled over, in some sense, by terrible, demonic, other powers and you could pick any particular place and, and work out, and it'd be different in Nigeria, in Russia, here, in South Africa. There'd be all kinds of places where you could look culturally and, and religiously and socially and say, this is what Satan's throne looks like here. But I think it's fair to say this whole world groans under the dominion of evil powers. And if we thought of our own context, we perhaps could think of the, the United States, at least stereotypically a number of decades ago, was, was more of a consensus Christian nation. People more or less accepted Christian values. The, the Bible had good respect. People, people who were Christians were thought to be good people. And these days, that's less and less the case. In many respects, people are going back to the pagan values of Roman times, of, of the time of Revelation. In some other respects, they're launching from Christian values and going to other places with them. We, we ourselves live in a place where where the world around us is more and more invested in following other gods and other powers. 
Now, we don't need to go crazy about that or be paranoid or angry about it, but I think we do need to recognize the context we live in. And, and that leads to the question, how in our particular context can we hold on? How recognizing that the whole world is Satan's throne and that we are living in that place, how can we hold on? Now, there, there's a whole realm of things we could talk about there, and ultimately the point is we hold on to Jesus, we, we pay attention to the Word, we listen to the guidance of the Spirit, we be in prayer, we gather in church community. There's all kinds of things we could talk about, but I want to narrow very specifically in today to think about how we can be faithful witnesses here and now. And I actually am going to borrow a, a little bit of work that Brian Chapel, who's a Presbyterian pastor in perspective, did. And I want to mention two strategies that we often adopt to deal with the world around us and its challenges. And then I want to, well, want to really just let those sink in and invite you to, to think about them. And I think this is significant because there are a couple strategies that are largely generationally divided. And, and as we move forward as a church the next couple years, we've committed ourselves to what we're calling a reform plan. And we want to cultivate more authentic relationships. We want to grow deeper in our relationships with each other. And we want to have deeper conversations. We want to talk about complex and hard issues and bring the gospel to bear in our lives. And we want to get broader ministry engagement. We want more people involved in gospel work. And, and all of that builds toward hopefully a couple years from now us being able to have more of an outward focus and be able to really get engaged with those around us in terms of what the gospel means. But to do all of that, we need to really listen to each other and we need to develop a, a more reflective and open spirit than we often have. So I want to present a couple strategies and then ask you to, to reflect on where you fall and how you might exercise patience with people who fall somewhere else. So the first strategy that Brian Ch Chapel suggests is, is to seek to control and to halt. And in his view, a lot of people born somewhere in the 70s and earlier they tend to take this strategy in terms of how we relate to the, to the culture, how we're faithful witnesses. And for these people, you, you grew up in a consensus Christian culture. Again, Christian values were approved of. The Bible had some respect for religious leaders, especially Christian leaders, were put up on a pedestal a bit. And if you went to church, that probably meant you were a good person. And a lot of that has eroded or feels like it's eroding. There is more and more that feels like the culture is pushing hard against Christianity, and, and we don't like it. And for this group of people, the strategy is that we need to control the culture. We need to take it back. We need to halt this erosion. That's one strategy. But then, as Chapel points out, for a lot of people born maybe late 70s, 80s, and on, there's a different strategy. And this group grew up in a culture that had already eroded that in many respects was no longer consensus Christian, but was, was all over the place. They grew up in a culture where Christians were a minority voice in a pluralistic and divided culture. And so the strategy that, that these people tend to feel makes the most sense to be faithful witnesses is to seek credibility in the culture and to seek to help. And so the goal is not to control and to halt. The goal is to, to really do what you need to do so that you can gain a hearing for the gospel in the midst of a culture that's opposed to it. And to seek to be a force for good and to show how Christianity transforms our lives and, and makes us better people so that 
the Christian life is attractive. Now, I think that many of us in this room prefer one or the other of those strategies and, and in fact, would say of the other one, that's craziness. But I can assure you, and I, I have my opinions, and many of you probably do about which strategy is better and which fits and so on and so forth, but, but I can assure you that you are sitting in this room with brothers and sisters in Christ who very strongly think one or the other of those is our right strategy for witness right now. And so what do we do with that when we disagree with our brothers and sisters? How do we move forward as a church when we disagree? So that, that's something I want you to reflect on. I don't have a particular action point. It's something I think we'll have to keep coming back to in the next couple of years to really work through how do we live out the gospel here and now, and how do we do that in a way that is not just my way or your way, but is our way. So key points here, we, we need to hold on to Jesus Christ in the midst of an oppositional and opposed culture. And we, we need to work on that. That will be hard, but, but along with that, let's do our best to cut down on the friendly fire. Let's hold on to Jesus Christ and hold our own strategies and opinions loosely, but, but hold on to Jesus Christ. Our second question for today, moving on to the next few verses, what were Balaam's teaching? Revelation says, you people are holding on, that's great, you're, you seem to be living up well against the external threats, but internally you're giving in to all of these temptations. And it talks about Balaam's teaching, and it talks about the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and, and we think that those were basically the same thing in Pergamum. That there was a, a, a continuity there. And these are, these are maybe not so much things that we could say, oh, this is exactly what they taught, but that we can get the overarching theme of compromise, of blending following Jesus with following other things. You may be familiar with the story of Balaam. It's a, it's a well-known story from the Old Testament. And in that story, Balaam is a prophet who is well, he's hired. He's a prophet for hire, and he goes and he, he'll lay a curse on your neighbors, if you like, or he'll bless your crops. And King Balak of Moab calls Balaam, and he pays him to put a curse on the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness toward the promised land. So Balaam goes, and he stands on this cliff overlooking the people of Israel, and, and then the Lord doesn't let him fulfill his contract. Instead of cursing God's people, he blesses them. And this happens a couple times, and Balak gets kind of wound up because he hired this guy to curse the people of Israel, and he's not doing it. And Balaam says, I, I can't. I can't do it. But then, then Balaam is able to help Balak. He can't curse the people of Israel, but he gives Balak this great idea. What if, what if instead of trying to take them on religiously head on, what if we sort of do an end run? And what we do is you, you get some of your women to go into the Israelite camp and get friendly with the Israelite men and, and try to develop some relationships and some connections there and, and then invite the Israelite men to just come and, you know, just offer a few sacrifices to other gods. Just, you know, I mean, hold on to the God of Israel. That's fine. Do, do that. But also do this. So Balaam gives Balak this idea and it, it seems to work out with some level of effectiveness that while Balak can't take the Israelites head on when he's fighting against the Lord, he he can kind of sneak around and get them to mix in elements of other religions. And, and once you start doing that, well, then all of a sudden you're not really committed to the Lord God of Israel. And so we don't really need to fight now, do we? We can just all get along. 
And that story has particular power at Pergamum, if you think of a place that, that is full of other gods, that has an altar, a throne of Zeus, that is the center of worship of Asclepius, the healing god, that, that is the center of emperor worship in some ways in the province of Asia. How easy would it be for Christians to say to each other, well, you know, we need to follow Jesus, and, and on Sunday we'll be in the church or whatever church building they had or however they gathered at that point. We aren't totally sure. But we'll do that. But, you know, nobody really takes the emperor worship seriously. I mean, you just mumble some hocus-pocus, Caesar, blah, 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 burn some incense, and then you're fine. Then you can keep your job and you get good work, so why, why not do that? And really, is it that big a deal to go to the pagan temple for a party? I mean, it's just a networking event, and okay, so there's some idols, and there's some sex on the side, but is it really that big a deal? I mean, come on. This seems to have been a live and lively issue for the church in Pergamum. And the problem is that if you mix Christianity and other religions, you don't really have Christianity anymore. You've made up your own religion. And it's not any longer truly following Jesus, but it's running after other things. And, and that is not the life we are called to as God's people. And that is not a life that is abundant in Christ Jesus. So let's bring that to today. And what might be Balaam's teachings today? Where are we invited to compromise? And we could talk, I thought about some big philosophical positions or, or social positions, and, and we could talk about some of those more intellectual or theoretical things, but, but I want us to take this in a really practical way today. I'm not going to say everything that could be said, and this, again, is kind of actually a narrow subset of everything we could say, but I want to focus on a couple temptations that I think come and nudge us and actually distract us from Christ. And to get us there, I want to actually tell a fairy tale. It's a Grimm Brothers story. You may have heard it. But there's this fisherman who goes out to fish, and he can hardly scratch out a living. He and his wife live in this little hut, and life isn't great. But one day, he catches this fish, and he gets it in the boat, and as he's about to gut it, the fish says, throw me back. Ah! I said, what? Throw me back, and I'll give you anything you want. And the guy says, well, you don't want to mess with a talking fish, right? Uh, sure, could I have a nice house? No problem throws the fish back, rows home, and he gets home, and he has this really nice cottage, this house they'd always wanted, and they, they couldn't ever afford. And his wife is a little bit confused, and he tells the story how there was this talking fish, and, and his wife thinks he's crazy, but there's the house, so okay. But after a few days, his wife gets discontent, and she sends him out to fish again and says, find that fish and tell him we want a castle. And her husband says, we've got a house. It's everything we've dreamed of. Why do we need more? She said, get a castle. So he goes out and he runs into the fish and he says, can you please give us a castle? It, really, my wife would appreciate it. Sorry. And the fish says, no worries. Go home. You'll have a castle. The fisherman goes home. He has a castle. His wife is happy for a month. But then she says, you know, I went to the capital city the other day and the king's palace is nicer than our castle. Go back and tell the fish I want a palace now. And the man says, no, this is crazy. And I, no, you're going. Okay. So he goes back out, and the weather's kind of ominously bad. And he says, could I, could I please have a, pat, a palace, please? I, I know it's a lot to ask. And the fish says, fine, go home. The guy goes home. They have a palace. 
Well, the wife travels to the emperor's town now and says, our palace is nothing like the emperor's. Go out and say, I want an emperor's palace. And the fisherman goes out and it's all repeated and the fish is grumpier, but okay. But then, then a year or so later, the wife says, you know what? This isn't enough. Go and tell the fish, I want to be God. And the man just says, you are crazy. We can't possibly do that. No, no, I've done enough. And you can guess what happens. He's rowing his boat out. He finds the fish. And he says, fish, the wife wants to be God. I don't even know what to say. And the fish says, go home. And the man goes home, and they're back to the hut they had originally. More and more and more and more. And in the end, you're left with almost nothing. Well, I think two of, the, two of the distractions we have from following Christ these days in our world are consumerism and crankiness. And I could have picked a different word, but I had to have the two C's there. So consumerism and crankiness. We live in one of the richest counties in one of the wealthiest areas in probably the wealthiest nation in the world, and we and the people around us are not content. You can go to the store and you can buy 50 types of butter and 90 types of milk and, and you can go to 15 different stores and there's all this stuff and it's never enough. We always feel like we want and we need more. And if you look at what you have now and you look back a year or you look back a decade or you look back a generation and what used to be a luxury, what used to be almost beyond comprehension now is a necessity. Now I cannot live without. When in fact, five years ago, you perfectly well lived without. And what will it be next year and five years from now? And it will never, ever end. And I am, I'm not against stuff. I think God made an amazing world and we develop it in amazing ways. And I have stuff. I'm not against stuff. But I think there is a devilish voice that whispers to us and sometimes shouts to us, you need more. You need more. No, you still need more. And it never ends. The God of consumerism. And then I don't think, I hope there is not a God of crankiness, but, but people are just grumpy right now. And it's, it's us, but it's everybody. People are just grumpy. And I think a lot of that is the last couple years of the pandemic and things dragging on and on, and all of us know we aren't going to get our way on this and that, but people are just grumpy plain old cranky. You made my latte with whole milk instead of skim milk. Wah! You don't have my favorite type of beer in stock. Wah! You didn't stop at the red light. Wah! And people are just mad. And we, too, are so often just mad. We feel inconvenienced, we feel out of sorts, and we feel like we have a right to strike out at other people because they aren't doing it right. And you know what? We may be right. They may not be doing it right. But I wonder how much it's a devilish voice saying, you have the right to strike out at those other people. You poor, wronged person, you. How, how much you should have and you don't have, and you should let other people know about it. Now again, these probably are not the greatest religious threats to Christianity, but I think in our day-to-day -day lives, consumerism and crankiness are, are two really devilish temptations that are really hurting our faith life and our witness. So how do we hold on in this context? How do we hold on when, when the song of Balaam and the tricks of Balaam and, 
And all of that are right there for us. And I want to propose two practices that are, well, they're not, they're not anything new. In some ways, they're not anything exciting, but I think it's good for us to, to try intentionally to develop them. So I think we need to practice contentment in a consumeristic culture and pursue calm in a cranky culture. We are always grabbing after more. Our hearts are, are pulling us and the devil's voice is pulling us toward more and more and more. Well, what can we do to be content with what we have? And sure, still work hard and go and buy the fun stuff and do all that, but, but can we have a basic attitude that in Christ we have enough? In Christ we have and we are enough. And so can we get off the consumeristic treadmill and, and really celebrate what we have instead of running after what we don't have? And then can we pursue calm? Can we find rest and peace in Christ so that we can be calm and gracious to those around us? I had an appointment this week, and the guy didn't show up. He didn't show up, and I was working on other things. And about a half hour after the appointment time, he called me very frantic. I'm, I'm so sorry I haven't been in the office this week because somebody had COVID, and I, I lost my calendar, and it's a snow day, and my kids are home, and it's not snowing, and I don't know what to do with them. And, it, and, then, and then there's this screaming in the background. <laughs> are you there just a minute and he has to go and kids i'm on the phone quiet down and he comes back i'm so sorry i'm just so sorry so sorry it's okay it's okay we can reschedule it's okay can we as christians just be the people who just say it's okay it's okay you made the latte wrong. It's okay you don't have that thing in stock. It's okay you didn't do things quite my way. It's okay it's not perfect. It's okay. Can we as Christians be people who in the spirit of Christ recognize what has been done for us and so just extend a little more courtesy to those around us? Can we just give a gentle answer? And these days, sad as it is, I think just being content and calm is a tremendous witness to being in Christ. And only in Christ can we truly be content and calm. One last question. What's our new name? This last verse or so in this text is arguably one of the hardest verses to, trans, or to, uh, to interpret in Revelation, say the commentators. So here we go. What is the new name? And what in the world is up with the hidden manna and the white stone? This is, this is, well, this is frankly a mess interpretively. There's lots of options. So I'm going to just give a little bit of framing up of the hidden manna and the white stone in this text, and that'll help us get to the new name. So there's this legend. You may have, well, you probably actually haven't heard it before because I never have, but you've probably heard of manna, which in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, when God's people were wandering, God provided a special food for them, manna. And he told them to take some of that manna and put it in a container inside the Ark of Covenant and, and keep it as a remembrance of God's provision. So kind of indefinitely, there's this manna in the Ark of the Covenant. And then at some point, the city of Jerusalem and the temple get destroyed. And we don't know what happens to the Ark of the Covenant. But there's this legend that one of the prophets or an angel was instructed by God to spirit the Ark away. And so the Ark was taken away and it was hidden somewhere. Maybe hidden in some special cave on Mount Sinai. Or, or maybe the earth opened up and swallowed the Ark of the Covenant and now it's hidden somewhere. Very Indiana Jones-ish, right? 
Well, the idea is that there is this hidden manna that will only be brought back out when God's kingdom is restored. There is this special provision of God for his people that right now we can't see, but someday we will see. And then in Pergamum and in other ancient cities, white stones were often admission tickets that you might, if you were a member of a certain guild, have a certain type of stone that, that if you showed that at the door, they would know you belong to the guild and they'd let, they'd let you into the party. Or there might be some event that, that the tickets were these little white stones, and so the only way you got in is if you had the stone. You only get into the party if you have the white stone. And there's 15 other explanations for both of those ideas, but I think those are the key points, that these are, these are somehow things that get you access into Jesus' feast. And at that feast, we're told that, they, that we will have a new name. And there's two ways to understand that new name. The first one is basically your name here. The idea is that Jesus will come to each and every one of us, and he will give each of us a new name and a new identity. Jesus redefines who we are, so he comes to us with this gift of of his life given for us, but then also of a new life for us. And when we spent some time in Africa, a lot of the people who we knew had become Christians as adults, and one of the practices there was to pick out a new name when you became a Christian. And people would, well, they often couldn't read, but they'd go through the Bible stories as much as they were able to, and they'd pick a a name that they felt like expressed something of who they were in Jesus Christ. And so we knew a Samson, because he was strong, and he was really strong. Um, It was always kind of a name that confused me a little bit, because Samson has some less than desirable characteristics also in the Bible, but, but he was strong, and he was one of the most helpful men I've ever met. So there was Samson, and there was Nuhu, Noah. And Noah, well, he had been chased away from his village. He and his family had had to run away for their lives, but it was worth it because Jesus had saved them, just like Noah is delivered from the flood, and yet all of his relatives, except his immediate family, perishes. Noah. And then there was Bulus. There were a lot of Buluses, actually. There were Bulus. I want to be God's apostle. I am the first. I was, I was brought in an amazing way out of these other religions, out of the darkness into the light, and I want to spread the gospel to my people. My name is Paul, Bulus. I want to be one who spreads the gospel. And everybody had a story behind their Christian name. So let me ask you this. If you were going to pick a new name for yourself, if you were going to pick a name for yourself in Jesus Christ, what name would you pick? Would you pick forgiven, redeemed, grace, hard worker? The options are infinite. What name do you think you would pick? And let's take that even deeper. Not what name would you pick, but what name would Jesus pick for you? Jesus made us. He knows us. He knows who you are. He knows all your weaknesses, and he loves you anyway. And he is remaking all of his people into beings who who we can hardly even picture now. What name would Jesus give you? It's probably a name that would be more gracious and more more descriptive and more accurate than, than the name we would pick for ourselves. Well, that is a name that Jesus will give you someday. He will redefine who you are and say, this 
this is you. And we will be able to rejoice in that. So that's one, one option to understand the new name. And there's another, actually, and that is that the new name that Christ gives us is actually His name, the name of Christian. And I don't think these are opposed options. I think they actually build on each other because you see, when Christ gives us His name, He remakes us, and not into a clone of Him, but, but into something more like God than we can even understand now. We as Christians, you maybe could think of it as a first and last name, that Jesus gives you your unique name, but then He also gives you the name of Christian. And Christian literally means something like little Christ, another version, another person of Jesus, so to speak. What does it mean for you to be in Christ? What does it mean for us to have a family resemblance to the Lord of the universe? Think about that. And what might your new name be? Beloved Christian, saved Christian, delivered Christian, gifted Christian, God gives us these names out of His grace. All of us in Jesus Christ have new names. And those new names mean we have new identities. And it means that God is at work in us to to make us better and better and more and more beyond what we can currently comprehend. And so we can hold on. And what this text calls us to do is, is to hold on and not to be afraid even of Satan's powers Because Jesus is more, and we can hold on to him. And this text calls us to to be secure in our position in Christ and to hold on to him, and so not to need to, to chase after other things. Jesus is more than all of that. And this text tells us that we have a new identity, and we have a a new type of personhood in Jesus Christ. And so we can hold on to Jesus because he has already named and claimed us. If you have ears to hear today, hear this. Hold on to Jesus because he has already grabbed hold of us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you help each of us to begin to understand something today of what our new name is. Lord, if we are struggling with whether your grace really applies to us, help us to hear and to receive. Lord, if we are struggling with whether we are good enough, help us to see how in Christ we are. Lord, if we are lackadaisical or lacking in our service, then then build us up and encourage us and help us to see how gifted you have made each and every one of us. And Lord, we pray that you help us in this hard world. In this place where so often it seems like Satan reigns and where we face endless trouble. Help us to be confident in you. And help us just as we receive grace from you, also to pass grace on to others. Amen.